The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Uh, first of all, we just had our, uh, yeah, if, if you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high, wave it around. One of the guys will get them to you. Um, we had first Wednesday was last week. Great, great success. What a great time it was. If you haven't been able to join us for any of our first Wednesday celebrations, I want to encourage you to make a priority to be with us. Our next one and our last one for this summer will be on August 2nd. And I do solemnly swear I will not make your children eat ice cream out of a rain gutter this time. Okay. Um, but can I just say, adults, I was really proud of you because lots of you grabbed spoons and jumped right in there with the kids that were eaten out of the rain gutter. For those of you that weren't there, we made a 20 foot long banana split in an actual rain gutter. And we just handed kids spoons and said, go to town. No plates, no bowls. That's unnecessary dishes. We just gave them spoons and said, go at it. And there were a lot of adults eating. I was really impressed with you guys because some of you were like, are you going to eat some? And I was like, oh gosh, no, (laughs) no way. I wouldn't eat that in a million years, but I'll serve it up. So anyway, make sure you join us if you would. Um, Also, one week from today is church at the fair. Next week, one person was excited about that. All right, cool. Um, (laughs) Everyone else, if you're not excited, whatever, don't come here. There will not be a service here next week. One big service we're joining with Medford Naz next week at the, uh, used to be the Lithia Amphitheater. Now it's called the Bymar Amphitheater, I believe it is. Um, service starts at 930. If you're a volunteer who signed up, we need you to meet us at Medford Naz. That's the church on the hill up off McAndrews on Saturday at 9 a.m. And it's only going to be a one hour training, I believe, volunteer training Saturday at 9 a.m. It's on the third floor there, but they'll have it marked. You'll be able to find where to go. So so that's Saturday at 9 a.m. for training for that. Church at the fair will be at 9.30. And I want to encourage you guys, come out early. There's a lot of stuff that'll be going on. There's donuts and coffee. There's some bounce houses even for the kids. There's seating if you have babies or young children and you want to, um, or, or anybody just wants to get out of the sun. There's some spots that'll be set up, kind of a family-friendly area. Um, baptisms are next week. And by the way, if you are planning to get baptized, especially um, if it's you or your child who is 12 years old, old or younger. We need you to grab one of the baptism forms. If you didn't get one, stop by the Connect Center on your way out. They'll make sure that you get one of those. We want to be able to meet with you guys um, about that, but we're really excited to do that. Um, Pastor Sam is actually over at uh, Medford Naz right now leading worship. Um, You guys know Trevor from Naz came and led worship here a couple weeks ago. I got to go over there to their Saturday night service and and, uh, worship with them. And it was just a really cool, everybody's really excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. So please don't miss out on that. Invite people. It's going to be a great opportunity. And just this week, please be praying. Um, that people that just, uh, for whatever reason, find their way. I don't care if they're coming, they think they're coming to see Fluffy in their day late or whatever it is. Comedian the night before, don't worry about it. He's terrible. But um, whatever it is, whatever reason they're walking through the door, may they just show up and be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So that is next week. And that's all. So um, for today, if you would grab your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in honor of the Word of God, let's stand and read together. We're in the juicy text today. Y'all ready for this today? I'm saying y'all a lot today, huh? On purpose. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, verse 13 through 18. The Word of the Lord says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just bow before you right now and ask, Lord, that your will would be accomplished in your church and in our lives as we study your text. Or this is a section of scripture that has been debated and divided over for many, many years. And, and Lord, I pray that, that our takeaway from this would not be some advanced intellectual understanding or being entertained or anything like that. I pray, God, that the purpose of this text, as you have given it to us, would be accomplished in our lives. And that your church would be encouraged and you would be glorified. So, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So Jesus had been talking to the disciples for a period of time, and he was starting to give them some pretty bad news. He was telling them, hey guys, um, there's persecution coming, and, and I'm going to be going away. In fact, I'm going to be killed. And where I'm going, you can't come. And oh, by the way, if persecution's coming for me, it's going to be coming for you too. After all, the servant's not greater than the master. So imagine the disciples, they're hearing these things. Life's going to get harder. Persecution's on the way. Our king that we've been following is leaving. We thought he was going to go into Jerusalem and ascend on the throne. And now he's saying that the time is short. The time's come. This is what's going to happen. And they were understandably scared, worried nervous about what's going to happen next and where do we go from there and into that Jesus spoke and said in John 14 let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you and if I go prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. You know the story. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies for the sins of the world. He, he is dead, buried, raises again from the grave. And then there's this period of time between when Jesus is here on earth and before he ascends into heaven that he's teaching the disciples. And he's again telling them that the time's coming that he's going to go. He's preparing them for what life's going to look like without him. And he takes them in Acts chapter 1 and he pulls them aside and says, guys, I want you to go into Jerusalem and you wait. Wait for the promised coming. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on you. And the apostles respond to them and they get a bad rap for this. Everybody thinks, oh, these idiots, they just don't get it. No, they get it perfectly. They respond to him and they go, is now the time that you're going to inaugurate your kingdom? And it's not that they're just looking for power and missing his words. They actually know the Bible. They know the book of Jude where a prophecy was given that said in the last days God will pour his spirit out all of mankind. And so they're like, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. So go to Jerusalem. We'll wait. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured on us. And then Rome's going to get kicked out. No more being persecuted. No more being pushed around. Then the kingdom, right? 
And Jesus says to him, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but you'll receive power. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit that you can go and spread the good news of the gospel all over the world. So go do what I tell you. And he ascends into heaven. You guys know the story. The, the guys are standing there on the hill and they're looking around and they're wondering what's going on. And two angels appear and the angels say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this is all in conjunction with many of the other teachings that Jesus himself had given throughout his time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, he spoke about this. When's it going to happen? When's he coming back? When? We know he went and he gave us power. We know the mission. When's he going to come back? And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, he said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Think about that. Jesus said, nobody knows when I'm coming back. I don't know when I'm coming back. The angels don't know when I'm coming back. Only God the Father has determined that time. Only God the Father knows. And yet, human history is filled with people that are like, I know, I know when, I figured it out. Most recent or most famous recent one that we can think of is probably our boy Harold Camping. Harold Camping in 2011 made quite a name for himself, but that was actually his second foray. His first time in predicting, he began in 1992 when he wrote a book called Jesus is Coming in 1994, Will You Be Ready? And in it, he talked about the fact that Jesus was coming in power to, to rapture the Christians and to judge the world sometime between September 15th and September 27th, 1994. So at an interview on September 28th, <laughs> he said, well, you know, I, I just miscalculated a little bit. Um, I, I missed out some of the importance of some of the Jewish faiths, um, but it's not that big of a miss. I am certain Jesus will be coming before the end of 1994. So in 2011, maybe long enough, you know, the internet wasn't really going in 1994. Not a lot enough not enough people really remembered. He took another stab at it and he had done the math. He'd used numerology and all these kinds of things. And now give him credit. He got bold. He, instead of taking a two week period or saying from here to the end, he just, he picked a day. He had done the math and he said that Jesus is returning again to judge the world on May 21st, 21st, 2011. And using his family radio program, internet, uh, blogs, all these kind of things, that word went out all over the place. And so many people who heard this completely bought in to this and donated tons of money. Medford had a billboard. I don't know if you guys remember, at least on Highway 99, there was a billboard between Medford and Central Point. Maybe they thought us Central Point people heading to Medford were a little more gullible, but they had a billboard up there. And it was there. And you wonder, why did those billboards there? How did that come? It, it was because thousands of people donated tons of money to do this. For example, one man, retired transit worker, Robert Fitzpatrick, took his $140,000 life savings and gave all of it to Family Radio to build billboards and posters and flyers to say that Jesus was coming again. Now remember, genuine, earnest people that definitely believed that Jesus Christ was coming and wanted the world to know and wanted the world to be ready. 
Um, another guy that I read about, and I saw an interview with him actually, 25-year-old John Ramsey, he quit his job, donated his entire life saving to it. His brother, who was still in high school at the time, dropped out of high school because what's the point of spending the next year finishing high school if Jesus is going to be coming back again? And they knew the date, May 21st. So on May 22nd, a dejected John Ramsey stated that he was disappointed that tomorrow he needs to start looking for a job. His brother talked about, I guess I'll just go reapply at school. An actual documentary crew followed Robert Fitzpatrick. He went to Times Square during that day and stood in front of those ticker tape things that come across on the screens because he wanted to be right there as all this went on. And there's a documentary crew. You can see the interviews online. And he's standing there going, I don't understand. I don't know. I don't know why nothing's happening yet. It's supposed to happen. I don't know. Well, Harold Camping, he looked at it. He did some math, said he'd miscalculated again. It's not going to be May 2011. It's going to be in October of 2011. Obviously, that didn't happen. And so in May the next year, he said, you know what? I was just guilty of a little bit of what he called excessive curiosity with regards to the return of Jesus excessive curiosity. I just went, I got curious about it and I went too far. Um, Sometime later before his death in 2013, I got to give the guy some credit here, came back around and he said, you know what? I now believe that Jesus was telling the truth when he said that no man knows the day or time. But he also said this, and this is good. I want to give him credit for this. Honestly, he said, I'm studying the Bible now more than ever, not to pick dates, but that I might be biblically faithful to the word of God that I do understand. It's good for him for finishing that. What's troubling with that is watching, the the part that's so heartbreaking is watching how many people that seem to be, or would seem to be, we hope to be sensibly Bible-taught Christians that hear these things, and they either give so much undue attention to these things, or become so rocked and traumatized with fear by the things coming. In doing so, they expose the reality that they have really no idea what the Bible actually teaches concerning the return of Jesus Christ. And then also, these misunderstandings and these false predictions, they add fuel to the fire for scoffers. The Bible tells us that this is going to happen. Because the scriptures say that in that last day, Peter says it in 2 Peter 3, in the last day will come scoffers with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And they're going to go, oh, you've been saying this for years. You said it in 1994, it didn't happen. You said it'd be by the end of 1994, didn't happen. You said it'd be 2011 in May, didn't happen. You said it's going to be October 2011, didn't happen. See, you guys say this all the time and year after year after year, nothing changes. And so it doesn't just add fuel to the fire of their scoffing, But it's a very real boy who cried wolf scenario that dulls down the intent of the teaching to tell the world that Jesus Christ is actually coming. Jesus is coming. Oh, yeah, you said that. It didn't come. Over and over and over. Well, you go, well, Jeff, but let's be fair. Those are the wacko Christians. Those are the wacko Christians, those are the televangelists, those are the TBN people. That's who that people is. And we don't do that. Responsible, God-fearing Christians never are guilty of excessive curiosity. But I would say we absolutely are. 
And I believe that good, responsible, intelligent, God-fearing Christians can be just as guilty as camping with regards to excessive curiosity, as he puts it, when we fail to focus, or when we focus too much on things God has not made clear and fail to focus enough on the things that God has made crystal clear. When we elevate the questions and elevate the speculation and dull down the things that God has made crystal clear in front of us, I believe that we make a fatal mistake because our job should be make the plain things the main things and the main things the plain things. Thank you, Alistair Beck. So Christians, well-intended, godly, God-fearing Christians like you and me and all of us at different times, me as guilty as anyone, have argued about the return of Jesus Christ for centuries. One of the most hotly debated topics within Christianity, which in itself is really interesting to think about. The event whereby God will gather together all of the Christians becomes a topic of division. It's the event that everyone will join together, but we separate into different camps over these things, and we argue about who's right, who's wrong, all these things. And the most common argument that comes up, the one that we're dealing with in this particular text today, is the issue of the rapture. Maybe you've heard that word. Um, If you've looked in the glossary of your Bible, you won't find it in an actual reference. The word rapture isn't in the Bible, which is not necessarily a bad thing. The word trinity isn't in the Bible either, though the Bible clearly teaches the trinity. The word rapture that we get is from verse 17 here in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. The word caught up in the Latin is the word rapio, which ends up, we get the word rapture from this, this idea of snatched up, grabbed up, caught up together with the Lord. And the rapture is speaking of that event where Christians are gathered together and taken out of the world as we know it by Christ to live with him forever. That's what the idea, the belief is. It's the John 14 event that Jesus speaks of in John 14 where he says, I will come again and will take you to myself that I will be all, that, that there you may be also. And so there's not a lot of argument with regards to will Jesus come again, not within what I would say respectable um, areas of Christendom. The Bible seems to be crystal clear that Jesus is coming again. The place where the arguments happen with regards to the rapture is in dealing with timing or whether it works out exactly the way that people think. The big issue tends to be timing, and not to be um, too punny after talking about Harold Camping, but, but there are four main camps, if you will, um, that, her- that, that, that this kind of uh, uh, belief system, the idea of the rapture and the timing of the rapture falls into. The first one is maybe the most well-known now, especially in light of successful series, the Left Behind series and the Left Behind books. It's referred to as the pre-tribulation rapture. This is what I was brought up in as a kid. Um, The pre-tribulation rapture believes that there's going to be this seven-year period right before the second coming of Christ in which God is going to pour out his wrath on a God-rejecting world. But Jesus is going to rapture his church, rapture Christians out of the world before that wrath actually takes place. It's also referred to in many places as the secret rapture. 
And the reason is, is this idea that, that it's just something that just sort of happens and the world's left wondering what in the world went on. If you saw um, that incredibly cheesy Left Behind series with uh, master actor Kirk Cameron in it, you know what I'm talking about where the people are on the airplane and suddenly it's just closed like perfectly contoured along the airplane seat. My favorite was the guy that was walking his dog and now there's a dog still on a leash laying on the ground and clothes are just perfectly laid out jogging suit with no one in them. Um, Apparently we will be naked on the other side of the rapture, it seems like, or given different clothes. Um, But I understand they're just, they're using that. I mean, nobody really knows. It's speculation. They're using artistic license to kind of show something that happened. And I don't mean to be um, um, derogatory too, too much because this is the belief system that I grew up in. And it's based in a large part out of this text in 1 Thessalonians, as well as 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, which says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so those in the pre-trib rapture position, and people who hold that position are men like Norman Geisler, um, Charles Swindoll, Chuck Smith, the Calvary Chapel movement, of which many of us have background in. In fact, in the Calvary Chapel movement, if you, if you do not hold to a pre-trib rapture position, you can't be a Calvary Chapel pastor. You can't be a Calvary Chapel church. It's considered a pillar of the Calvary Chapel movement, though that seems to be changing in areas of Calvary Chapel. Um, so there's well-respected, like, I mean, who doesn't love Chuck Swindoll? I mean, who doesn't love Chuck Smith, Papa Chuck? Who doesn't love these guys? And this is the position um, that they hold. And their take is, God has not destined us for wrath. This text shows us that Jesus is going to rapture the church up with him before God pours his wrath out on people. Which I would like to say, that's the one we all hope for. Amen? Of course you want to hope for that. No, I want the other one to be wrong or to be right so that we can just go through the seven worst years in the history of mankind and watch people die and the moon turns blood red and all those sorts of things. I'd rather go through that. No, of course not. We want the rapture pre-trib to be true. Um, And so I was brought up in the church. I, I remember seeing the early Left Behind movies. Anybody seen any of those early, early Left Behind movies back in the day? Or that song, that terrible, it's all over YouTube. You should totally look it up. You've been Left Behind song. I remember those Left Behind movies, they wrecked me as a kid. Like nightmares, terrified. That last scene, people had tattoos of like barcodes on their foreheads or numbers or whatever it was. And they're like marching towards the guillotine and their friends are off to the side like, Join us. And it was just like, oh, nightmares, right? But here's the thing. A lot of my uh, Christian upbringing, that's the only view that I learned. I didn't understand anything of any of the other views that anybody else had. And I was taught them and they were discussed in such a way as to make me think anyone who would disagree with this clearly isn't Christian. I mean, how can you call yourself a Christian if you don't believe in the pre-trib rapture, for goodness sake? Kirk Cameron, for goodness sakes. Which is really weird because you know this? No one in the early church held that view. No one. That, that view did not become espoused until the uh, 18th century. It became more popular through the teachings and writings of John Darby in 1830, and then even further popularized with the release of the Schofield Reference Bible. But we were so sure. We're the ones that are right, and everyone else had it wrong. And that was the only view I knew, and it became incredibly dogmatic. And you would go, no, no, it's got to be. Don't tell me the early church didn't know that, because the early church talks about last days. Yes, they do, but not the same. 
When the early church is speaking about the last days, they're talking about what's referred to as covenant theology. And the idea is this. God related to his people through a series of covenants throughout the scriptures. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And in each of those, there was a role for people to play. If you want to be the people of God, this is what it looks like. This is your requirement. This is what you're to do. But then God comes in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and he says, Behold, I'm sending a new covenant, not like the covenant that your forefathers had. And it's this new covenant of grace where our relationship with God is built on the work and person and righteousness of Jesus Christ not ourselves and that's the last covenant nothing else is coming after that God has no other program for how he's going to relate and interact with his people it is now totally and completely through salvation by grace alone in Jesus Christ apart from anything that we do and that's it and so when the early church is speaking of the last days that's what they're talking about they're not talking necessarily about when the world ends all the time and so that was kind of the view I had. Like, that's the only one. The pre-trib rapture, that's how it works. God raptures the church. We all vanish. Airplanes are going to crash because pilots vanish. All this kind of stuff. And then I started looking into some things and studying some of the other things. I was like, hey, I should probably be aware of what other people that disagree with this are saying, these heathens. And so the next one I learned more about is the post-tribulation rapture, which is a much darker story, I won't lie. The post-trib rapture says that the church will go through the seven-year tribulation period where God is judging the earth, that the church is going to go through this just the same as everyone else, and then we will be raptured at the end of the tribulation. But it's not to go like vanish and be with Jesus while other things are going on, but we are raptured. We meet with him in the crowd, in the clouds as he's coming back in the second coming to judge the earth and to establish his kingdom. And you think, well, that's silly. That's a yo-yo. Raptured. Oh, we're right back here. Like, why would, why would he do that? And they, but, but listen, there are incredibly brilliant, God-fearing men and women throughout history who their whole goal in all of it that they're teaching is simply to honor the scriptures as given who can come to scriptures and say, no, here's exactly why we believe this. For example, in this exact text, verse 17 then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be in the Lord. They would tell you, for example, in verse 17, when it says, we'll go into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, there's a nuance in that phrasing. And that word that's used there for meet, to meet the Lord, is only used three times in all of Scripture, here and two other places in the New Testament. And in each one of them, the nuance that's there is referring to an ancient practice where if you're in a city, and a visiting king or dignitary from outside that city is coming to meet you, you go outside the walls of your city to greet the king as he comes, and you enter in with them, showing honor to the visiting authority as he comes. And they would point to every one of the uses of that phrase to say, no, no, this is what it's saying. That when Jesus comes, we will meet him, and we will come as established people in his kingdom. And there's really godly men. Like I said, there's John Packer, or excuse me, John Piper, J.I. Packer, Tim Keller. There's incredibly God-fearing men who all they're trying to do is not win an argument so much as just honor the scriptures as they see them that believe this. And I remember learning some of these things and I was like, it rocked me. 
Because I'd never heard anything else other than the pre-trib rapture. And I'm hearing these guys who are gospel-centered, brilliant theologians pitching something else that I'd never even seen or heard before. And I was absolutely blown away. And then I started learning even how like different cultures have looked at it. For example, N.T. Wright holds the position of post-tribulation rapture. And he was writing or being interviewed once about the, the American fascination that had taken place with the Left Behind series, um, however many years ago that was. And he said this, the American obsession with the second coming of Jesus, especially with various distorted interpretations of it, his words, not mine, continues unabated. And seen from my side of the Atlantic, the phenomenal success of the Left Behind books appears puzzling even bizarre. Few people in the UK hold the belief on which this series of novels is based, that there will be a literal rapture in which we are snatched into heaven, leaving empty cars crashing on freeways, kids coming home from school only to find their parents have been taken with Jesus while they have been left behind. And when I was in Israel, I got the opportunity to meet a Jewish teacher, pastor, and scholar there. And he had actually just been part of a tour that had taken place going through Israel. And the purpose of the tour was eschatology, which is a, a fancy word for the study of end things. And so it was a tour group that went through Israel, visiting all the different sites. And as they went to each site, they looked at them through the lens of Bible prophecy. How does this play into what the Bible teaches in times? And they were a, the, the group that he was part of, that he was helping lead through, because he did a lot of the historical part is there. They were a pre-trib group, and he wasn't. And he was telling me as he was going through this that, that he struggled with some of that kind of stuff. He goes, as a Jewish Christian, as a Jewish man, I struggle with the fact that if the church believes that they've truly been grafted into Israel, then what makes them think that they would experience a different kind of tribulation than Israel does and has all along? He said, I see these things and it doesn't make sense to me why the church would be different when we've been grafted in. And he had some pretty compelling arguments to this. And then there's others. There's the mid-tribulation rapture, which believes Christians will be raptured sometime midway between the, the uh, rapture period. Um, I literally Googled, like, who are some prominent theologians today that believe this? And I found zero. So let's skip that one. Um, the pre-wrath rapture um, is that you were going to be raptured, like, right at the end of the tribulation period, before God really starts pouring stuff out. Men like James McDonald are proponents of the pre-wrath thing. Um, what's the point of all this? Here's, here's what I want to say. In all of these different areas, there are things that are clearly clear division among texts that are not so clear. If we go to some of these passages with an actual sense of humility that wants to understand where some of our Christian brothers, God-fearing Christian brothers and sisters disagree with us, I think you're going you're gonna to find out that, man, there are some really solid and and, and dependable, like, we, like, man, that guy is rooting that in scripture. He's not just making something up. And for so long, I was so prideful in my own view and what I believed that I thought anybody else that disagreed with me was wacko. Well, what does heritage think, Jeff, you might be asking? Well, I'm going to almost tell you. When it comes to any issue here at Heritage, whether it's issues that are controversial or debated or even issues of church matters, like how we do church, um, I, I believe that my, uh, my professor up at Western Seminary, Gary Brashears, he's the head of the theology department, years ago, um, kind of put together a framework by which it's really helpful and by which you can look at really 
anything within Christianity or the culture or how we do church. A, a, a way of looking at anything that comes up, whether it be theological distinctives or church practices or what do we do here, in any of those things to be able to look through a framework and categorize them in one of four different areas. And this is how Gary Brashears frames it. And this is what we've used to look at things like this here at Heritage to decide what are the things we're going to be really serious about and what things maybe not so much. And so he breaks things into four different categories. The first is this, he calls it things that we die for. And things that we die for are things that are so central, so scripturally clear, so obvious to us based on scripture that to depart from these truths means you're not a Christian. To leave this set of truths, the things that we will die for, is to leave traditional historical Christianity. You are outside the faith if you disagree with these things. So issues such as the divinity of Jesus. Is Jesus just a guy or is he God in the flesh? Um, the inspiration and authority of scripture. Is it just a book no different than the Koran or anything else? Or is this the word of God that's been given to us? Um, salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. If you're going, man, I don't agree with that. I think, you know, that's cool that you're being saved that way. I met this dude Buddha. I'm doing his thing, but we're all going to be at the same place. You are not saved. You're outside the bounds of Christianity. These are things we will die for. We will never, ever budge from these truths. Christians have lost their lives and been martyred because they were ordered to recant these things and to recant them is to recant their faith. Tracking with me on that? Those are things we will die for. The next category is things that we divide for. So these are things that are not necessarily outside the faith if someone disagrees with us on how we view it, but they're things that are so central and so crucial and important that life within the same church becomes pretty much impossible. Things that are so um, uh, um, um, so central to life as a Christian that we don't have the ability to partner and coexist within them. You're going to end up spending way too much energy dealing with these things as they come up over and over again. And it's going to prevent the ability to faithfully go through with what God has called us to do, gospel proclamation and worship. We just cannot see eye to eye on these things. And so among them are things like gay marriage and human sexuality, the sovereignty of God, and, and there I'm not talking about order of salvation, I'm talking about the, the power, the authority, the, the control that God is Lord of heaven and earth, the supremacy of Christ in those things. Um, model of sanctification. There are those who believe that the day that you get saved and put your faith in Christ, that sin on that day is gone forever. That if you're really saved, you'll never sin again. I've never met that person. I've met people that say they believe it, but they end up being so arrogant and saying that thing to me that I'm pretty sure they're sinning in pride at that moment as they talk to me. And I'm like, you should get saved, bro. I mean, by your own beliefs. So, so that. Um, practices regarding the Holy Spirit can be one of those. Um, and also the centrality of the gospel is a really important one to us. If you're if your understanding of the gospel is more along the lines of the prosperity theologians or, or, or those, or if you believe, yeah, I believe in the gospel, I just don't believe we have to spread it or make it a big deal, yeah, we're not going to be able to coexist very well in the same church. The gospel is our motive and motivation and the power for everything. So, so I'm not saying you're not Christian, 
I'd, I'd check, but I'm not saying you're not Christian, but we're not going to be, I'm not hiring you, not for this church staff. You're not going to be in leadership here. We're not going to be doing that because we just, we don't see to eye to eye on some really important things that are going to affect the mission of the church. So those are things that we would divide over. The third category is this, things we debate for. So things we debate for are things that we might disagree we might sit down over coffee and, and debate it. We might even get a little heated. We might grit our teeth a little bit as we disagree. But we can still come together and throw an arm around one another and worship God together because the things we're dividing over are not so crucial that they cause actual division amongst us. So maybe there'll be things that are more appropriate for a coffee shop or a, uh, a seminary classroom or whatever the case may be. They may not be things that we want to make big deals about from the pulpit when our primary goal is to elevate the person of Jesus Christ. But there's things that we can just go, you know what, I see it this way and you see it this way. And we can even be passionate in our convictions about those things, but not necessarily have to divide from one another. So examples of this might be women's roles in leadership. It might be date of creation. It might be order of salvation, you're a Calvinist, I'm an Arminian, or I'm a Calvinist and you're an Arminian, and we just want to debate these things. We might be theology nerds that just really want to get into this, and we might even be passionate about it, but we should absolutely be able to still sit together and lift our hands and worship Jesus together within the same room. And then finally, there's number four, which is things that we just decide for. And the decide for category, those are just things that at the end of the day, they just really don't matter that much. I mean, have your conviction and, and walk according to them. They're just not worth fighting over. They're certainly not worth expending energy and risking division or hurt feelings or any of those sorts of things. We just want to honor God. and We trust that you're going to honor God and you make your choice and I'll make my choice. But in the end, it's just not that big a deal. So questions like, should you raise your hands during worship? In the church I grew up in, if you raised your hand during worship, an usher's going to come and ask what you need. <laughs> Did you need something? You, where the bathroom is? What do you need? Why is your hand up in the air? Put it down, man. That, I mean, that's just kind of the way it is. It's an issue of church practice. Um, other issues of church practice. How should we order services? What should the liturgy be? Um, should we um, only sing hymns or should we only do this? Um, Bible version is a big one. Um, early on here at Heritage, when we were teaching from the New American Standard Bible, um, I was doing a sermon one time, and a guy um, after service who had no, like he, he did not attend here, and he was just visiting. So he, he, he wasn't even going to live here. We're never going to see him again. I don't even know how he found us. He just ended up here on a Sunday service. And when I taught from the New American Standard Bible, instead of the 1911 King James Bible, which he was saying is the only authoritative word of God, when I finished that sermon, he came to me red-faced angry at me. Just like, I, how can you, how can you? And I was like, oh, I have heard about you guys. <laughs> nice to meet you. I mean, he was angry angry about something that I'm like, people ask me sometimes, they're like, which Bible translation should I get? And, and I love the answer I heard years ago. I can't remember who said it, but just get the one you'll read. We have some really good translations. I would, I would encourage you to understand them, know what their strengths are, know what they're used for, but get the Bible you're going to read. We are really blessed with a lot of Bible translations that will serve you well and help you learn about Jesus. But I'm certainly not going to fight with you over that. There's way more important things to do than that. Or other issues, lifestyle issues, such as can a Christian drink alcohol? Can we watch movies? Can we listen to secular music? All of those sorts of things 
those are the things that we look at and we're just like, look, that, do, do, do your thing. Do your thing. We, we have people on staff that are Calvinists and we have people on staff that are Arminians. And we can debate those things and tease one another, and we can, but we're not going to divide over those things. And we have people in our church that believe Christians can have alcohol and we have Christians that are teetotalers that abstain from all that kind of stuff. It's just, hey, do your thing. Honor your convictions. That's serious if God's put a conviction in your heart. But let's not waste any time fighting over this when there's people that are dying from the gospel out there. And so those are the four categories. Things we'll die for, things we're going to divide over, things that we'll debate, and then things that we decide for. And, and here's the goal. The church's goal is let the scripturally clear things remain high on that list. Keep those things high. Honor them. Be faithful to the word of God. Things that are matters of opinion, conjecture, things like that, Find ways to push those things as far down those categories as you possibly can for the sake of unity within the body of Christ and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the goal. What are the things, like if it's a scriptural thing that we cannot, man, we want to hold that up high. But if it's a matter of opinion that the scripture's not really clear or doesn't address at all, then, then let's just allow people to let the Holy Spirit work in their lives and let's just coexist. There's so many more important things to do than waste time arguing about some of these things. And, and the way it ends up working out, divisive people are those who come into the church and they take the little things that are low on the list and they elevate them to unhealthy places causing division that's unnecessary. And that's what we don't want. We don't want to be the guy that takes Bible translation and makes it an issue that he's going to end fellowship with brothers and sisters over. But at the same time, false teachers are those who take clear die-for issues, things that are biblically clear, and they dumb them down into issues where it's like, well, it's kind of open for debate, open for, for interpretation. You guys do what you want to do, and we'll do what we want to do, and that stuff doesn't really matter. That's where false teachers come from. And so what the church wants to try to do, how can we avoid compromising the faith and be as non-divisive as possible over issues. And that's the tension that you're always living in. And so when decisions come, you go, where does this category fit? Where do we frame this? How do we look at that? And so you go, okay, Jeff, whatever, whatever, whatever. Rapture, where's heritage? And here's what I would say. Concerning the return of Christ, it's die for. Jesus is coming again. The Bible is clear. I will fight you over that truth. Concerning timing, one, two, three, or four, Three and a half, four if I'm grump on a good day, three if I'm grumpy, somewhere in that. Regarding the timing of the rapture, where is that? I, I would say no, no higher than debate for is what we would say. Now, I, I'm fully aware, by the way, that other churches classify things in different issues. Even something as simple as drinking becomes a divide over issue in some. I understand that. I'm telling you where heritage stands on that. And each church will be accountable to God for how they met, navigate all those kinds of things. I'm telling you what we do. So when it comes to the rapture, we divide or die for the truth that Jesus Christ, our King, is coming again. It's clear in Scripture. But with regards to timing... And I, I, I want us to be way more concerned with mission than his method. Or as has been said before, I want to be on Jesus' welcoming committee, not Jesus' planning committee. If that makes sense. And I would way 
rather us emphasize that we are about the things of the kingdom so that when he comes, whenever it may be, we are found to be about the king's business, about the business of the kingdom, and that we're not ashamed at his coming whenever it comes. Now, practically speaking, pray for the rapture pre-trib, right? Pray for that, but be ready for the post-trib one too. Be in a place where your, your eyes are so focused on Jesus that you can endure any storm that comes because you're built on the rock of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. But what I'm also concerned with is that we take issues like this and use them in a way that becomes unbiblical. And here's what I mean by that. You can take this text right here and it's teaching. And you can believe what it says and you can say the words that are technically truth that's here. You can say it and use it in such a way that is completely unbiblical because you have divorced the actual truths of the passage from the context and purpose in which it was written. When we are told about these things in scripture, we're given this information by God for a reason. And when we divorce our understanding of that, no matter which view you hold, from the purpose that God gave us in knowing that in the first place, we're in error and we are no less guilty than Harold Camping and what he's doing. We have been, become excessively curious about the things of the scripture and we have forgot the things that the Bible has made clear concerning the purpose in which they are written. And so with that in mind, let's look at the very context of this passage. Why does Paul talk to this church about the rapture and about the second coming of Jesus? Remember the context. Paul's writing a very young church, growing, faithful, young, only a few months old at most. And these guys, life is getting really, really hard. But now he's He's built them up for their faithfulness. He has applauded them for their faithfulness to the word of God, for their faithfulness to their convictions concerning Jesus Christ. But just because their faith in Jesus was so strong doesn't mean that they don't have questions. It doesn't mean you have a lack of faith if you don't understand something, if you don't have questions. And these guys have some questions about things. I mean, for goodness sakes, they're only a couple months old. So they've got a lot of questions, especially about death because persecution's on the rise. Their belief system is causing them great strife and persecution from those outside the church who disagree because they're preaching a new king, Jesus, which is a threat to the existing kingdom around. And people have died. Persecution's gotten so hot that Paul had to get hidden and snuck out of town. And now Paul has just written to them and he said, guys, I applaud you for how you've been faithful to your convictions in Jesus Christ. But now I want you to continue living in a way that glorifies God. I want you to do it, as he says, more and more, more so and more so. So think about it. Their faithfulness to King Jesus has caused them persecution, even death. And he's saying, do that even more. So if they get more and more godly, live more and more Christian lives, what are they going to get more and more of? Persecution. So they got some questions. Man, okay. And we're, we're in. We believe you. But what's the end game here, Paul? Like, I mean, um, how does this play out? Just, we just die? And what about those that just died? Are they, did they just 
you know, miss out and it's only those who persevere and are actually alive. Like how do all of these things work out? And so Paul says to him right off the bat in verse 13, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who sleep so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. He said, I I don't want you to to miss out the information. I want to help answer your questions. But what's the purpose of him talking this? He's like, I'm going to tell you about this whole thing regarding those who die. And he says, I'm giving it to you because I don't want you to mourn as those who have no, what? Hope. He wants to remind them you're different than those people because you have hope. The purpose of the teaching of the return of Jesus Christ is always to give hope. Specifically, to give hope that they may persevere in their faith in spite of the difficulty of the culture as they live Christian lives. That's why he writes these things. That's why the whole book of Revelation is given. To encourage these churches that as things get hard, the end is worth it. Hang in there. Persevere. Have hope. And so Paul writes to them, guys, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to have to wrestle with these questions about what happens thinking you don't have hope. You have hope. But he doesn't just say that they have just random hope. Look at what he says in verse 14 about their hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those that have fallen asleep. When he's pointing to their hope, he points to their belief in what? Jesus. Their hope, don't miss this. The hope of the church is not the rapture. The hope of the church is Jesus. He doesn't want them looking to an event. He wants them looking to a person. And even in that, what is the thing about that person that he elevates? He elevates the gospel. Hey, Jesus came, died, and rose again. And the Father did not abandon him to that death. The Father did not leave him in that. Jesus rose again. The Bible teaches us, and he writes elsewhere in Corinthians, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he points to Jesus and says, the sign of our hope that we're going to be okay is not the event of the rapture. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that already actually happened. That's the part that we put our hope in, not some eschatological event that hasn't occurred. Never miss that church. If we're going to make the plain things the main things, and the main things are the plain things, nothing is more plain in Scripture than the reality that our hope is always centered in Jesus Christ, and that is the most central thing we could possibly spend our time on. Our hope is in Jesus. And then because Jesus rose from the dead, he's saying we don't need to fear death. In fact, he calls it sleep. I love sleep. Don't you? I didn't sleep hardly at all last night. I was incredibly disappointed. I plan on making it up later this afternoon, and I'm excited about that. I like sleep. My son in school this year did this whole school project, and at the end of the year, they brought this stuff, and it was questionnaires about your family and all these things. And one of the questions is like, what does your dad like? What does your mom like? And my son, he had so many options. He could have picked fly fishing. Like, how did he not get fly fishing? He could have picked Tar Heel basketball fan. Nope. Mine says, dad likes to sleep. That's what it said. Which made me wonder, like, man, am I being grumpy? And be like, leave me alone. I'm trying to sleep. It, like, totally convicted me with him. But I love sleep. And you know what we get out of sleep? We get rest. We get energy. 
We are rejuvenated. We, sleep brings life the next day. And this is what he's saying. We don't have to fear death. Death to us is a nap that is going to lead to more energy than you could possibly ever imagine. So don't fear. Don't fear death that's coming. You have hope in Jesus. Even as God did not leave Jesus to decay in the grave, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. This is where Paul's theory of being in him, his theology of in him. We are in Christ. So just as Christ has been resurrected, God is going to raise us again. And our death, it's not death. It's just a nap. Amen? Nap people, if you're getting a nap today, amen? You just be like, I'm just being godly, honey. And then look what he says about this. He says in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. By the way, um, those who hold to the post-tribulation rapture, who don't believe in the quote-unquote secret rapture that this event happens that no one else understands, this is actually the same text that they use for that because they're like, Dude, it's like shouts and trumpets. This is anything but quiet. Nobody tells a secret through a trumpet. So there's, there's, you can understand why people are basing their beliefs in Scripture in these things. It should give us pause to actually give people some grace on some of these things. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And this is what he's telling them. Hey, church, I know you guys are struggling. You're preaching this new King Jesus. But this new king doesn't seem maybe at times like he's coming through for you. Because the more you talk about this King Jesus, the harder life gets. And who wants to hire a king that makes everything worse? But church, our king's coming. And I know that your your speaking about this king is causing life to be difficult, but I'm telling you right now, and he's not coming gently, man, he's coming. He is coming in victory, he is coming in power, and all this stuff, whether it be even should you experience death because you believe in this king, it is nothing but a nap. This king is coming and you will be with our king forever, he says to them. And then, even though we get so, so confused in how to use the text that's given, he gives us so crystal clear the point of it all, the purpose. Like, why are you telling us this, Paul? What do we do with this information? The king's coming. Yeah, there's still a lot of questions on how and why, but what do we do with this information? And look what he says in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The goal, the purpose of speaking about the return of Jesus Christ, no matter what camp you're in, in terms of timelines, or we haven't even got to like the millennium and all those sorts of things, no matter where you are in any of those things, those things are given to us in scripture to give us hope and that we, think about it, might encourage one another with these beliefs. Not divide, not look down on, not beat one another up, Not with arrogance, say, you idiot, how can you not buy into this? Not build ourselves up with this pride, thinking we've got it all up. The whole purpose that God ever gave us any of that information to begin with is that you might take that information and use it to encourage one another. 
And yet some of the end times discussions I've had with Christians are some of the least encouraging conversations I've ever had in my life. And when we do that, when we take whatever belief you have concerning your eschatology, your end times timeline, your beliefs or whatever, when you separate those from the intent that these have been given that we might be encouraged and that we might encourage one another, you are now using biblical information in an unbiblical way. I don't want to see us do that. I want to see us, I don't want to divorce the intent of scripture from the actual scripture itself. I believe that, that that's the same thing that false teachers do when they take things out of context and use them to say whatever they want. They're divorcing it from the purpose of the text that was given. So what's heritage, what are you saying, Jeff? I'm, I don't care if you are pre-trib or post-trib. I care that you're about the mission of God and I care that you are living and loving God's people and that you are an encouragement to people within the church, not a discourager and not someone causing division, especially over the very event by which God wants to unify everyone. Let's not be that way. The purpose is to encourage you will be with Jesus forever. And he will fix all of our timelines. He will correct all of our calendars and our charts and our belief systems. But Jeff, what do you think? I, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I've learned so many things from so many people with so many different viewpoints. I have respect for a lot of different people. I have inclinations. I have leanings. I have those kind of things. But I'm not going to build dogma on something the Bible seems to be intentionally unclear about. But what I do know is this. Jesus Christ is the King. And Jesus Christ is coming. And I will be with Him forever. And if you're a Christian, you will be with him forever. And he has given us this promise and he has assured, and it is a promise. He said, I wouldn't have told you if it wasn't going to be true. I promise you, I am coming again. So encourage one another with these words. And if ever we could use some encouragement in our time and our own personal experiences as Christians in America, it's probably today. Whether it be having a bad week or whether it's issues of looking at where the culture's going, Whatever the case may be. And I'm not saying that these things don't matter. I'm saying that keep them in their proper place and don't use these things to divide the body of Christ over these things. Use them to encourage the body of Christ. How much different could it be if someone who's in one tribe and someone's in the other, if they could come together, talk about their differences, but in the end, the result of their conversation isn't so much like, I want to win this guy over, but I just want us to be able to encourage one another and just go, it's going to, whatever it is, it's going to be amazing when Jesus gets here. Amen? Wouldn't that be a much better conversation? The purpose of all of it is to encourage. There's a guy named Richard Baxter. He was a famous preacher and hymn writer back in the uh, uh, 1600s, right on the, the end of the Protestant Reformation. And um, he was kind of a, an itinerant preacher. He preached at a couple of different churches for little periods of time, but more than, more than often, more often than not, he, he was a traveler. He traveled around and preached and wrote, and he wrote hymns and did this kind of stuff. And the story of his ministry life is a very difficult one. Um, 
coming out of the Protestant Reformation, standing up against some significant issues in the Church of England that he felt were die-for issues that were being thrown away. Um, he was making his stand on, hey, I'll divide from you for this, and I'm going to die on these truths because these are real. And as a result of his position, he actually spent a lot of time in prison for his beliefs. So he understood persecution the same way the Thessalonian people. So his, his story of ministry is a really hard one, actually. He had a, I have a much easier experience as pastor than Richard Baxter did. Um, his story of his personal life, and in particular his romantic life with his wife, is a much, much happier story. He met this woman named Margaret, and she was the absolute love of his life. She was half his age, which caused some ire from other people, but, um, but their story is one of just unbelievable unbelievable support between the two of them. Even though he was traveling, even though a lot of times he was without home, they, they weren't able to build a life in the way a lot of people wanted to build a life. They were poor a lot. He was in prison a lot, so she was by herself a lot. In spite of all these different things, he would say that she was the best support he had ever gotten. And their story of their marriage and relationship was just a love affair to be, to be wanted in everyone's marriage. It was an incredible story. But as every marriage eventually does, should the Lord tarry, it, it did end with her death. She actually got really ill, and um, the sickness that she had was unto death. And he was a hymn writer, as I said, and during this time he wrote a hymn known as, the name of the hymn is, Lord, It Belongs Not to My Care. And in that particular hymn, um, on the transcript of it, when he wrote it, there was an inscription where he wrote with his hand at the bottom of it. And it said this, speaking of his wife, it said, This covenant my dear, former wife, or my dear wife in her former sickness subscribed with cheerful will. In other words, he was saying, this song my wife would hear and it brought her joy. She believed in this and it brought her cheer and hope. It encouraged her, is what he's saying. And it says this, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this my grace must give. If, thy li if my life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, why will I be sad to welcome an endless day? Come, Lord. When grace hath made me meet thy blessed face to see, for if thy work on earth be sweet, what glory that will be. And then I shall end my sad complaints and weary sinful days and join with the triumphant saints that sing my Savior's praise. And then listen to the last verse. Listen to what he says. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough to know that Christ knows all and I will be with him. Oh, it's so good. Man, that life, this understanding of how all this stuff's gonna work, what heaven's gonna be like, all these things. There's so many things I don't understand. There's so many things that us on this side of eternity, we, we can wrestle with and try to figure out and it's so difficult, but it's enough to know that my faith is in the one who knows everything and I will be with him forever and that is enough for me. And that's what we need to strive to do, church. Amen? Our king is coming. So encourage one another with these words. Will you stand, pray with me? Father, will you humble us?
Lord, help us to understand the limits of our own understanding in all things. Your word even tells us to lean not on our own understanding, but in all ways acknowledge you. And so I pray, God, in every way, and especially in this one, this is where we are today with eschatology and these things, Lord, I pray that we would honor you, that we would acknowledge you, that you, Jesus, would be first and foremost on our minds. You are our hope, not some event in the future. Our hope is rooted on an event that has already been accomplished. It is done. It is sealed. We are saved. That is our hope, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that we would continue to remember that you are coming again. But I pray, Lord, that that would not be something that leads to division and argument, but, Lord, encouragement and hope and a motivation to share the gospel with those who are lost because time is short. Help us to understand, Lord, that we live for a kingdom to come. We are aliens on this earth, exiles. Lord, may we live as ambassadors to your kingdom. And may we show the grace and mercy of God even in our love for one another and our love for those that are outside your grace. I pray, God, that we would stay in awe of your majesty and power, stay in awe of the fact that you set such majesty and power aside to die for us, and that we would have and be encouraged by the absolute hope of the return of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, it's soon. In accordance with your scripture, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But yet, Lord, Your grace is enough for us. So may we be empowered by your spirit to be faithful to your word and to your will, come what may, until that day. May we be as a church, Lord, this church in particular, may we be found faithful about your word and your will, Lord, working for the kingdom now. May we not be ashamed at your coming. May we be filled with hope. May we be encouraged. And may the result of all of this just be to cause us, Lord, just to worship. And so, Lord, it's it's with worshipful hearts and with prayerful hearts, Lord, I pray that you would even receive our song. We sing with me. Oh.